Welcome back to season three of Summer Reading with the Deals. This is Adam Deal. I'm joined by my wife, Whitney Deal. Hello. And we are talking about The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. This is episode eight. We are talking about the minor characters today. So we, we have covered almost every character in, in the other episodes, but I, I think that the minor characters deserve their own episode, similarly to the episode seven that we just did on the women. I don't think that this novel is primarily about the women, nor is it primarily about the the minor characters. But but this story, it, it's like every character is essential to the story, no matter how small. And so, um, you know, that's something I think Dostoevsky do, does incredibly well, especially in this novel. Uh, maybe to a greater degree than he does in any other, and and I think that's why this is probably his most beloved work by those that, that have read, uh, you know, a, a great swath of his work. Although I I do love Crime and Punishment, but um, I guess Whitney, let's let's just start with the, like you've read this twice through now. Talk. Just talk about like the number of characters and how, what it's like having to kind of engage with so many different people in this novel. The first time you read it, for me at least, the first time I read it, I couldn't keep track of all the minor characters. Some of them just fell through the cracks for me in terms of understanding it all, what their purpose in the novel might be. Um, in the first scene, we already talked about how in the first scene of the novel in the monastery, so many people are gathered or represented in some way who are going to continue to pop up or be important, even if they don't pop up very often. Like um, Kalganov is an example of that. He is in the first scene um, in an incredibly minor way to the point where you're like, why is Dostoevsky just confusing us by adding another character who's not doing anything? And then he doesn't show up for hundreds and hundreds of pages, but then he suddenly is in Mokro in the end at a pivotal moment, and he does these little things involving Dimitri, like give him clothes when his clothes get confiscated by the authorities. And he, I think he ends up being important just as one more way in which the themes and ideas of the novel are working themselves out. So I, I just don't think that you can catch that all the first time you read it because no. you're just trying to get your bearings. You're trying to make sure you understand who all the major characters are and who all the women associated with them are and so these other people. Like Rakitin, I just kept thinking to myself things like, why does Alyosha hang out with him? <laughs> and I didn't really understand what was happening with his character very well, but having read it again, and um, I've listened through most of it a third time, and I've just done some reading about Dostoevsky's thoughts and purposes, and um, a lot more has come clear. So in the edition that I have, which is the uh, Richard Peviar, Larissa Volokonsky, Volokonsky. Uh, edition from Farrar, whatever, Strauss, Giraud, um, that uh, I guess it's like the main one. Like if you were to search it on Amazon, it probably is the first one that comes up. Yeah. Um, 
this edition has a character list. Not, maybe maybe every edition doesn't, but this one does. Um, and I think it's helpful to an extent because it, it, it gives some of the major characters. But like, like to, to your point about Rakitin, it mentions Rakitin, but it doesn't give any context. Like the whole second page is just characters with no context. Whereas like the first page has like, Karamazov, Fyodor Pavlovich, and then his three sons, and then Smerdyakov, and then uh, Grushinka, Katerina Ivanovna, Father Zosima, and then um, the Snegirov family, which is the Whisk Brooms family, so is Yusha's uh, dad, and then, you know, it's like his mom, his sisters, and him. Um, so, so to an extent, like, there's some grouping on this first page, but once you get to the second page, other than Grigory and Marfa Ignatievna, the, no no two characters are connected, you know, back to back. I guess the next characters are Rakitin, Father Pisi, Father Farapont. Uh, then you get Ippolit Kirillovich, um, and then Nikolai Perinovich, Nadyudov, etc., etc., etc. And so, uh, you know... Going back to this um, this character list, I'm looking at these, and some of them I'm like, uh, I don't think I remember who this character is. Although I do remember Trifon Borisovich, um, because Whitney has this, I don't know what to call it, but it's a thing where she just has a phrase running through her head all the time. And so um, I don't know, what, what's been the most recent one, do you remember? No, it's like I'll either have a song stuck in my head like a normal human being or I'll have a word or a phrase stuck in my head or a name or something like that. Um, like I remember I was reading this biography of Nicholas II in the spring and um, they, the royal family, the czar's family in Russia would go to a place called Sarkozelo and I kept thinking Sarkozelo in my, in my mind over and over again. It's pretty annoying to be honest with you, but his name got stuck in my head several different days while I was reading the book. So he is the, I guess, like he's involved with the party at McCroy, right? He owns the inn. That's right, yeah. He's the innkeeper, uh, inn owner, yeah. And then he um, memorably is tearing his inn apart because he thinks that um, the rest of the supposed 3,000 yes, rubles yes. is hidden somewhere in his inn that, that um, Mitya has hidden it somewhere. So he's like, taking down the boards to look in the walls and, you know, nonsense like that. So, you know, you bring that up, and I think that that's a good illustration of he's, I wouldn't say comic relief, but I would say that his role in the novel is comedic because that's just funny to think about. It would be very anxiety-driving if you were the person because you'd be like, I've got to find this money. It must be here. Oh, my gosh, I might find 1,500 rubles. Um but is it worth destroying your end to find it? So, um, so I think that that's a great like starting point about like what purposes do these minor characters serve? And I think one of the main ones is comedy. So, um, I mean, this novel's about a murder. You would think it's it's a really dark novel, but it's not. I mean, it's not. I, I would say that there are some serious moments. 
but it never feels dark. Like it never feels like I'm reading, you know, Absalom, Absalom or something. So let, let's talk some more about like funny characters. Like who else did you find amusing or funny in the novel? I think Kolya is funny. Um, the, I laugh the most in this book and the scenes with the little boys, um, even though some of them are so sad and so awful. Um, I also laughed a lot. Kolya cracks me up. Um, just the way he talks and the things he says he trusts, it sounds so grown up, but then you you imagine a, still a young boy saying the things that he says, and it's just funny. Kolya is 13, and the boys are 11, and so he he kind of sees himself as this, like, elder statesman of the boys and, and uh, role model and mentor. And, of course, 13 to 11 is not a big jump. I mean, <laughs> especially because Kolya is, is kind of undersized. I think of him, like, I, I don't know the kid's name, but Whitney, you'll know how I'm talking about the guy... <laughs> I said looked like tattoo from Love Island. Not Love Island, from um from ah, shoot, uh Fantasy Island. Fantasy Island. The plane, the plane. Um just it's like he dresses really um like grown up and kind of pulled together in, in a in a fancy way. And so Kolya to me comes across as like almost like uh like a little boy trying to be an adult. Yeah, he's so condescending to little kids, and then he likes playing with little kids, but then he'll say, I'm just humoring those kids, you know, by <laughs> playing a tag with them. You know, it's good for kids to be humored every once in a while, um, but he clearly really likes it. It's cute. He He's just, he's charming, even though he acts like a little jerk sometimes, and he does things for, for the sake of a grand gesture. Like... For example, he, the dog, um, Zuka, I think. Yeah, is. that basically poor little Ilyusha is sick and has wanted this dog. He's like agonizing over where this dog is, and Koya has had the dog the whole time and is training him, and then like has a grand reveal and gets a lot of attention for himself. It's like the hero who brings the dog home, but Ilyusha is kind of hard on him about it and says, you know, I can't believe you should have just brought this dog, you know, immediately would have made him feel better. And you should have come and visited him sooner because he's really sick and he wanted to see you. It wasn't worth it for this grand gesture and things like that. It reminds you of why Alyosha says to him, you have a charming nature, though it's been distorted. <laughs> um, poor little Koya, his nature is getting distorted by kind of a somewhat uneven education. Like, he likes to read, and he reads whatever books are in his house, but there aren't that many books in his house, and he doesn't have any guidance with it. And he seems a little arrogant at school. Like, he likes to tell it, put his teachers in their place and things yes. like that. And his mother is really worshipful of him and, and treats him, kind of puts him on a pedestal. And so he just doesn't seem to have a, a like... Anyone to put him in his place, really. So thankfully, I mean, he, but at the same time, he's looking for guidance. His father's not, I think his father's died. So he's looking for guidance. And thankfully, in the end, he comes to see Alyosha as a mentor. But in the earlier parts of the novel, he's looking to people like Rakitin as mentors. And so he's imbibing um, 
European socialist ideas and skepticism and um, he has a smattering of Voltaire, a smattering of this, a smattering of that. He hasn't gone very deeply into anything, but he feels as if he is too good for everyone around him and already knows everything he needs to know. It it does remind me of Smirnikov, and he does have interactions with Smirnikov as well, but that Smirnikov is being influenced by Ivan similarly to how Rakitin is influencing Kolya. Yes, and I think that that's, you know, this idea of influence is something we've hit on before. We're hitting on on it again now. Dostoevsky's view of of what what you can do as a person is if you if you are a great you know a, a, an intellectual Superman, a, a emotional Superman, a, a spiritual Superman that that if you have this gifting, that you're responsible to basically guide people in, in a a direction that leads them to the truth of Christ. And, you know, uh, especially the intellectual supermen of the time, almost all of them in the 19th century were being pushed to atheism because that that was thought of as, at that time, like a, a radical thing, you know. It, it seemed like a new thing, like, oh, we've realized that all these people in all of history have been fools and and have been hoodwinked. And, and you know, the, the uh, quote from... Karl Marx that says uh, religion is the opiate of the masses and in reality I would say that entertainment is the opiate of the masses but um, that that really took hold in the generations preceding the Russian Revolution it wasn't that it it like started coming to fruition in Russia in the 1910s it was really happening even in the 1850s and 60s um, and so this this book you know is really kind of like showing what direction these these intellectual supermen are, are, are taking the, the, the country. And so, um, yeah, Kolya could become one of those, potentially, but I think by the end of the novel, you see that he's going in the direction of Alyosha. And, Alyosha. and um, I think that he would have been a central character in the sequel as well. I mean, that's that's just my, my personal view, but, but I think... Lise and Kolya and Alyosha would all have would all have been central to that that uh, second book that that Dostoevsky was planning. Yeah, Kolya is a rich, interesting, dynamic character. Uh, he would have borne a lot more treatment, I think. And I I like the way the book is arranged. You get to the end of the Mitya being interrogated and arrested and taken away episode which is long I mean it takes a long time to read it and it is kind of harrowing I mean Mitty's just going through these emotional ups and downs and he is like I'll cooperate with you you don't deserve my cooperation <laughs> it's just he's all over the place and it's it's really rich but it's it's kind of harrowing to read and then it immediately switches to the section about the children and it does provide some comic relief mm-hmm. and some tonal change that I really appreciate and and Koya, um, or, or Kostya, he's called different things. Right, but right. he is so funny. Um, like, I'll just read you a couple of random moments that I thought were funny, but there really are so many. Yeah. Almost the whole time that he's interacting with these little 
children that he is babysitting for when you first are meeting him is so they're so funny um oh my gosh like you're one of your first impressions as he's babysitting for these kids and it says every time he opened the door they grinned at him hoping he would come in and would do something delightful and amusing so like I feel like that's the pattern that they're used to with him is that he might just like pop in when he gets a whim to and just be awesome and hilarious, but they're not sure he's going to do it because he's pretty, he's pretty mercurial. He seems kind of moody. Um, but okay, here's a moment that I put, you know, I wrote, he's hilarious on the, <laughs> the margin. Um, says they're playing with this little he has like a tiny cannon that you put actual gunpowder in yeah. which seems dangerous but you can see how kids would be fascinated with it i'm sure josephine would be <laughs> utterly fascinated <laughs> with this um he says Boom. Yeah, that's exactly what she would say some fireworks were going off and she just said boom <laughs> i guess calmly as humanly possible but he says i'll give you a little shot here take it but don't show it to your mother till I come back or she'll be sure to think it's gunpowder and we'll die of fright and give you a thrashing. Mother never does whip us, Nastya observed at once. I know. I only said it for stylistic reasons. <laughs> 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 like, just little things like that. Um, oh, never mind. Sorry, Kostya is the, the little boy. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, I was just, like, looking at names on the page and getting mixed up, which... Occasionally happens in this novel. Um, but yeah, I know I only said it for stylistic reasons. Um, and then he says, you won't be frightened and cry when I'm gone. And the little boy says, we shall cry. <laughs> and the girl says, we shall cry. We shall be sure to cry. And he says, oh, children, children, how fraught with peril are your tears. There's no help for it, chickens. <laughs> I don't have to stay with you. <laughs> He's very dramatic. You can tell He's one of these smart kids that everything he's ever read and heard, he's absorbed like a sponge and he can repeat it back. So he just seems so funny and precocious beyond his years. Um, but at the same time, you see this dysfunction in him because he does things like he lays down on the railroad tracks and lets a train go yes. over him. Like, that was horrifying to me. I mean, I try not to even think about it too much, to be honest with you, because it's so scary thinking to me. Um, it says either by vanity or by reckless bravado, he was moved to bet these other kids two rubles that he would lie down between the rails at night while the 11 o'clock train was due, and he, he did it. And it's partly because he's so small. Like, I think it's coming from his, like, need to show that he's brave because he feels undersized for his age. But, you know, <clears throat> you were talking about that section with the babysitting. It made me think about Max Fisher from Rushmore. Oh, yeah. Very similar, I think. Yeah. Ha only has a smattering of understanding and learning, but wields it with such confidence and bravado yeah. that adults are like, huh, you have a charming nature, even though it's been distorted. <laughs> I'll give you 2500 for the initial plans. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the next chapter, A Schoolboy, uh, chapter three in book 10, I just start, I had started highlighting Kolya's stuff with this, like, kind of like Granny, whatever, Granny Smith granny Apple. Granny Smith Apple Green. Um, I almost <laughs> said Granny Apple. Um, but, but I started highlighting him in, in that color because he does seem like a little bit green, 
you know, yes. in, in that sense, he's a greenhorn. But um, one of the things he says to Smurov, Smurov uh, says, uh, Ilyusha did say that Zhuka was shaggy and gray and smoky, just like Perez Vaughn. Couldn't we tell him it's really Zhuka? Maybe he'll even believe it. And then Kolya says, schoolboy, do not stoop to lying first. And second, not even for a good cause. And above all, I hope you didn't tell him anything about my coming. And he's just, it's like, I find it charming. Some people might find it off-putting. But it's like, you know, to Whitney's point, like he, he just is, he's always thinking in grand gestures. He's always thinking in like, you know, this isn't Zhuka, this is Perez Vaughn, and it really is Zhuka. And he goes, they're like, if only it were Zhuka, and he goes, that's impossible. Zhuka doesn't exist. Zhuka is lost in the mists of obscurity. <laughs> <laughs> this kid. Like, where did he read that? <laughs> and one of the things that he says, so they're talking about Herzenstube, Her- who's the doctor. So this is the same doctor going to Ilyusha, um, that's sick, that, that comes and, and testifies in the court. He's good comic relief, too. Yeah, he is. Because his he's shake, German. Yeah, yeah. His, and his shake is he always says, I can I can make nothing of it. <laughs> like, he shows up, <laughs> takes your money, and says, well, I can't make anything of this. Um, the, he's like, sometimes there are these Dickens-type minor characters in Dostoevsky where they seem like they say the same thing over and over again. They just have a shtick. And it's funny, but at the same time, you, you like kind of roll your eyes. But I guess that's kind of how it's, the minor figures in our own lives seem to us sometimes. It's like they pop in every once in a while, and they seem the same every time. And sometimes they have a little tick right, that you right. notice, and then they move out of your life again. So, Kolya, on the next page, they're, they're talking about... Um, I guess they're talking about what Ilyusha is sick with, and he has consumption, so he's dying of tuberculosis. And so it says, uh, swindlers. And then someone says, who are swindlers? He says, doctors and all medical scum, generally speaking, and naturally in particular as well. I reject medicine, a useless institution, but I'm still, going, I'm still looking into all that. Anyway, what are, all, what are these sentimentalities you've got going? Seems like your whole class is sitting here. He's so, so, like, patronizing and condescending, and it's it's like there's just something about it that's charming because he's trying to be that way, but he he's like as small as they are. So I don't know. There's just something about it that's the way he expresses himself. To me, he reminds me a lot of Dimitri. Me too. Um Especially he, he wants to have a sense of honor and he says a lot that he has a sense of honor and things like that. You know, like, I don't tell lies. Um, Dimitri, it's one of these things where if you go around talking about your own virtue so much, people start to think that you don't really have it or they're just annoyed with you talking about it. And I think they can both tend to be like that. But we know that there's a core of self-consciousness in Kolya that is driving a lot of this condescending attitude. So it gives you the sympathy for him. Like at the beginning of the lost dog chapter, which is the the next chapter, mm-hmm. it says he's about to meet Alyosha and he had longed to meet him for a long time. He just had always, every time he heard about Alyosha, he thought, I just, there's something about him that I just really want to meet. And it says, 
So the present more moment was important. To begin with, he had to show himself at his best, to show his independence. Or he'll think of me as 13 and take me for a boy like the rest of them. And what are these boys to him? I shall ask him when I get to know him. It's a pity I'm so short, though. <laughs> Tuzikov is younger than I am, and he's half a head taller. But I have a clever face. I'm not good looking. I know I'm hideous. But I have a clever face. I mustn't talk too freely. If I fall into his arms all at once, he may think, how horrible if he should think. That whole part's interesting because, okay, on the one hand, you see the thought process of him behaving the way he does. He has to show his independence. He's self-conscious about his looks. He's self-conscious about his stature. Um, He's making sure everyone thinks he's clever because he thinks that's what he has to trade on as a human being. He thinks about himself a lot and the impression that he's making, which distorts your nature inherently. If you're thinking about the impression you're making instead of just thinking about the person you're interacting with. Then at the end, it's like, what is, he's like, what does Alyosha want with all these boys anyway? If I fall into his arms all at once, he may think, oh, how horrible. I even got an impression there might be just a little hint of, there might be something like creepy about Alyosha hanging out with all these boys, which I think is a worldly perspective. Like, what's he want to do hanging out with all those boys? Um, That gets dispelled completely in the actual interactions. Like, Alyosha is hanging out with young boys because he's, like, gentle-hearted and kind, and he cares about what happens to them, and they've gotten thrown in his path, and so he's trying to help them. And I think that, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only person that's thought of this, but I think there's clearly a, like, Christ and his disciples parallel. And so, you know, that that I think is is happening, especially with um, Kolya and 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 um, Alyosha is Kolya's like heard about Alyosha and he's like, you know, I don't think I'm going to follow him. And then he like just falls right into Alyosha's leadership because Alyosha is training him to be the leader. Like he's, he's not thinking he's going to be around these boys forever. And so, you know, Kolya clearly will be for a lot longer because he's, he's close to their age. He's at their school and, and, Alyosha's probably not going to live in this t- same tiny town forever, whereas Kolya might. And so, you know, the responsibility he's taking to, like, raise up a leader f- for them that, that will lead them in the right direction spiritually it is essential for, for Alyosha because that's that's what matters to him. And, and, you know, I think that, like, Dimitri is a great, like, wasted character in a way because he clearly is a leader. I mean, he's clearly someone who could be a great leader in Russia, but instead of leading, all he's done is just kind of like waste, like waste money and time and then get really like angry about kind of like people not giving him his due, if that makes sense. And I, I certainly see that with Kolya. Like he, he could clearly become that same kind of like, you know, I'll murder my father if he doesn't give me that money right now. You know, um, just that same sense of like indignation that, that Dimitri has. Um, I think it's just, there's something about that in, in Kolya. And I think that Alyosha probably notices that like, like if I met someone that reminded me of my brother, I might treat them in such a way that I would treat my brother if I could like guide him 
up from you know being 11 instead of him being you know 35 like he is now yeah the the performative aspect of Kolya and um yeah kind of reminds me of each other um like before he presents the dog um Koya says, I'll show you something directly, Karamazov. It's a theatrical performance, too. He said, laughing nervously, that's why I've come. Um, he acknowledges it's a theatrical performance. Like, that's why he's, he's bringing in, in this grand, dramatic way, the dog. And he's waited till he's trained the dog so that he can really make a show of the whole entire thing. Um, even though Alyosha is like, this poor little dying boy wanted this dog, like, could you just bring him the dog? <laughs> Why are you making a performance of it? And Mitya is not the same as that exactly, but he does do things just for kind of on a whim for attention to be dramatic. Like he went around telling everybody that he blew 3000 rubles in one spree in at Mokro. And when the people interrogating him are asking him like, well, Mitya, if you, only spent fifteen hundred. Why'd you go around telling everyone you spent three thousand? And he's like, I told I told a fib. I don't know. Who knows why people lie? It just sounded good at the time. I just said it. I think Mitya just has that same impulse. Like this will be the dramatic thing to do at this moment. The thing to say to Katya is, I bow to you. And he's like, say those exact words, Alyosha. It must be those words. Like he just has this gesture in mind. Yes. And I was thinking about you know Colia's gesture with this dog. You know that we mentioned it with this um, Smerdjikov. That when we were talking about Smerdjikov and Ivan, um, Smerdjikov has has basically raised these boys, not raised them, but you know he, he's interacted with them, and he got Ilyusha to put a needle in a piece of bread. And so this dog, Zhuka, like, bites into this bread. And, and so um, I think he just runs off. But but, yeah, but he's convinced he's killed the dog right, and he, he just yeah. can't live with it. And so, so this sickness that he has seems to be a physical sickness and also this, like, great grief sickness that he's like, I'm so ashamed and so guilty and, and, like, I, I just can't go on thinking that I've killed this dog. And so uh, when when Kolya goes to actually see him, you know, he, he's trying to call him old man, which is just, like, really endearing, like, hey, old man, how you doing, you know, um, because he's younger than he is, obviously. Um, but it says, uh, well, so, old man, how are you? It says, but his voice broke. He could not muster enough nonchalance. His face somehow suddenly twitched and something trembled around his lips. Ilyusha kept smiling wanly, but still unable to say a word. Kolya suddenly reached out and for some reason stroked Ilyusha's hair with his hand. And it's just the, the, the tenderness of this interaction is so unworldly. Like, it's just the world will tell you, like, oh, that's gay, or oh, that's that's effeminate, or oh, that's weak, or you should, childish. you know, childish, shouldn't sow emotion, et like, cetera. Like, oh, wants to cry, and it says that he had to do his utmost to control his feelings and not burst out crying like, quote, unquote, a child. Yes. And do what he could, he could not control it. So, 
that's the thing. It can be like a man to cry. Yes. When your friend is dying and you're seeing him again, like... See episode six. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, continue. Sorry. So, but but I, I bring that up because, you know, I, I think that th- this this level of tenderness that he is showing is a genuine emotion. And so what's happening is he's seeing the weakness of this friend and he just wants to just like put his hand on his head. Like that's a very Christ-like thing to do. Just to 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 give physical touch in a way that shows sympathy and compassion. And and you know the word compassion means to suffer with. And so um I think Kolya did not know he was going to suffer when he got there. He thought he was going to entertain. And, um, you know, he comes into this very serious moment with this grand plan to, like, you know, knock Ilyusha's socks off. He's going to laugh so hard. He's going to be so happy that this dog is alive. And Kolya doesn't understand because he's 13 that, like, he's kind of setting this up like, well, it's not, it's not, um, Zhuka. It's, it's Perez Vaughn. And he's so mean about it. He's like, yeah, um, Zhuka definitely would have died from that bread you fed him. He explicitly says that to Ilyusha. He's like, no way that dog could have survived it. And that's mean. (laughs) He says, she ran off somewhere and died. How could she not after such an appetizer? Oh, my gosh. And he's like, this will make it really (laughs) surprising when the dog runs in. And you can see Alyosha in the background just like, oh, my gosh, kid, like, stop. You know, please. I I think it even says he's trying to give him a signal at some point, like, Stop, stop, stop. Yes, yes. <laughs> He's just kind of looking at him like, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> and it's, I don't know. It's, to me, just this whole interaction is so genuine. It's so artless in a way, you know. And, and of course, we, you know, we live in a world where artificiality is so prized that people actually make a living being artificial like instagram influencers are making an making a living much better than i'm making being artificial but the reality is how do you you know how do you know yourself do you think you are your number of followers or likes or whatever do you think you're your uh, bank account you know it's like who are you because if any of those things go away then you have to start from zero. And I think that that's, that's a, a huge temptation to young people, you know, especially people like Kolya's age. I remember being 13, 14 and just thinking like, you know, the person that I am now at 39 was the farthest from my mind. I, th- I thought I was going to be, you know, I, th- I thought I was going to go to Stanford on a swimming scholarship. Um, and <laughs> that I could get into Stanford academically. But um, that did not happen. But that's, you know, that's the thing is that at that age, you have so many different pathways in front of you that the best pathway, which is the one that Alyosha is giving these boys, is one that seems like safe, tame, well-trod, you know, oh, I'm going to go down this path that no one's ever been before. And the reality is that path leads to a, a chasm that you can't cross. And so you, you end up having to 
backtrack on that that path and then you know find find basically you know the ancient words ever true and and I think that Kolya is is so young that he doesn't understand like that is the most life-giving thing that's why all these boys like Alyosha that's why he like he is drawn to Alyosha is because of his faith yeah and it's telling that when they really go through something, Ilyusha's death and seeing the intense grief of um, the captain, they are drawn toward something that's genuinely nourishing for your soul and not just showing off. Because, you know, in these scenes that we were just looking at, um, like in the Ilyusha's uh, bedside chapter, you just see Koya showing off, showing off, taking up all the air in the room, having to be the center of attention, telling these stories that to someone like Alyosha, to someone with some maturity and thoughtfulness are not impressive stories. Like he tells stories about how he treats the peasants and he is so condescending to peasants while giving them lip service. Like, you know, you really got to respect the people, you know, I believe in the people. I'm always glad to give them their due, but I don't want to spoil them. Like he... He's mouthing things he's heard, I think, probably from people like Rakitin. Um, And he is talking about, you know, just unkind tricks he's played, thinking he's being funny. Um, And kind of like the trick he just played with the dog. And all the boys are like, he took... Oh, and he talks about his teacher and how he took his teacher down a peg about who founded Troy. And all the kids and the captain are cheering him on like he's so great. Adam and I have talked a lot about the fact that People who try hard to impress their awesomeness on other people are usually successful with younger people or impressionable people for a while. Um, there may not be much to it. And, and honestly, there's usually a deep insecurity at the heart of having to impress other people about how awesome you are. But it works for a while. Um, it's not working on Alyosha, but it's working on the schoolboys. It's working on... Uh, Captain Snerdigov, however you say his name, who is pretty impressionable Snegi- himself. Snegirov. Um, yeah. So, you know, just that idea that Whitney's talking about, like, what what to impress upon others. You know, I think Alyosha has the right idea that he wants to impress his love upon other people because, really, he's, he's trying to impress Christ's love onto them. And I think that that's... You know, I've heard these, like, you know, uh, axioms or whatever that are like, you know, people won't remember, um, you know, this, that, or the other. They'll remember how you made them feel, you know. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I, I do appreciate that some of my students find me hilarious. I, I love being hilarious. I try to be funny often. But there's a time to be funny, and there's time to be serious, and there's a time to be surprised, and there's you know there's there's time for every emotion, and I think that Kolya just just kind of didn't read the room. It's funny that you know he brings the dog in. He says it's Zuka, or sorry, no, he he like he like shows that it is Zuka, and then Ilyusha says it's. Zhuka, he cried out suddenly, his voice cracked with suffering and happiness. And I think that that's a perfect way that Dostoevsky described it. Obviously, that's the original is in Russian. 
but that there's a combination of joy and like great pain in his voice because he's like, oh my gosh, the dog didn't die. Like I was so worried about it and it didn't die. And it's like, it's ha- he's happy that it's alive, but he's still feeling like he did something wrong. And I think that that's, that's what it's like to be a Christian. <laughs> it's like we have the joy, the blessed are those, you know, are, are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Like we will never be fully joyful on earth because there's too much that we've done against Christ, e- even after we become come to faith, let alone before. And so there is that like emotional gray area that Elisha's in that Kolya isn't in. He says, who else did you think it was? <laughs> he shouted with all his might <laughs> in a ringing, happy voice and bending down to the dog, he seized him and lifted him up to Elisha. Look, old man, you see, he's lost one eye and there's a little nick on his left ear, exactly the marks you described to me. I found him by those marks. And he goes on and on and on. And it's like, He's he's so entertaining that you can't help but be like, this is heartwarming. But at the same time, he's like not he's not reading the room. He's not, he's not understanding the severity of Ilyusha's illness. He's not behaving well, even though he is quite entertaining. Which I think is I keep coming back to this, but Ilyusha is so honest with him, and he's like, you have a charming nature, but it's been distorted, like. You're so charming, but you're not channeling your charm in very good directions right now. Like, I like, Alex is just so honest with him and uses the power of silence, too. Just not saying anything one way or the other. Not even giving a disapproving look. He's just there. And Koya will be blabbing on about something. Like, Koya says things like, um, universal history, it's the study of the successive follies of mankind and nothing more. The only subjects I respect are mathematics and natural science. <laughs> he says he's showing off and steals a glance at Alyosha, but Alyosha is silent and still serious. Um, and then he says the classical languages, too, they're simply madness, nothing more. You seem to disagree with me again, Karamazov. It says, I, I don't agree, said Alyosha <laughs> with a faint smile. Um, Kolya keeps, just keeps on talking and Alyosha doesn't say much, but he just is honest. You know, I, I don't agree with what you're saying. <laughs> I don't feel the need to argue with you, but I, I don't agree. And so he brings the dog in and he's trained the dog to do all these things and including playing dead. And, and Alyosha says, and can it be, can it be that you refuse to come all this time only in order to train the dog? Alyosha exclaimed with involuntary reproach. That's precisely the reason, Kolya shouted in the most naive way. I wanted to show him in all his glory. (laughs) (laughs) There's something about, like, I I know that Dostoevsky was very, like, interested in this section of the book, like the boys, the the, the children. And it's like... It's, you know, he puts it so late in the book. I mean, this is like pages 540 to 560 or whatever. Like, it, it, it's so late in the novel 
Like it, it, it's like the last third of the novel to bring in a new character. And, um, and, and that's part of why I want to talk about the, the minor characters is like, there are all these characters in the novel that, that are very memorable, but are just not the center focus, you know, central focus of it. And, and so Kolya, I think is a great example of just, I don't know. He, he seems to be fully alive, but he's not fully growing into like being an Alyosha, for example. You know, we said he's like Mitya um, in some ways, and I think not in all ways. I think he's somewhat like Ivan too. He's got pretensions to intellectual superiority toward you know everyone else. But one thing that reminded me of a previous conversation we had was just this idea that um, maybe Ivan and Mitya represent like different paths that Russia could be on or different parts of the Russian nature or the tendencies of Russia. Um, but maybe Kolya does too. Like there's that part where he and Alyosha are talking in the chapter called Precocity, um, which is a great title. But Alyosha starts smiling when he's listening to Kolya talk and talk and talk. And Kolya says, like, something about, like, you know, what what are you smiling at me for? And he says, I'll tell you why I smile. Not long ago, I read the criticism made by a German who had lived in Russia on our students and youth of today. Show a Russian schoolboy, he writes, a map of the stars, which he knows nothing about. And he will give you back a map the next day with corrections on it. <laughs> that's that's cool, yeah. And so it's like he notices that that's true. Like th- that's part of why I think he's so endearing is like he, he knows that's true about Russians. And yet he's going to give back the map with corrections. on. Like there's something about him where he's like, this is so true about us, right? But then he's, st- he's, he's still... He's under that, um, like he's a derivative person. Like he's not a he's not an original, genuine person. He's still he's still deriving his identity from basically like the the stereotype that he's choosing. If that makes sense. And I think that seeing yourself as a scoundrel is very important in this book. It, it's a, a good sign for your spiritual walk. Because there are moments in the book where Mitya and Ivan are like, I'm a scoundrel, like at key moments. And that that means that you have some humility to see yourself as a sinner, which is the first step toward repentance. Um, Kolya says the same thing. He says um, in that same chapter, Precocity, he says, um, what kept me from coming was my conceit my egoistic vanity and the beastly willfulness, which I can never get rid of, though I've been struggling with it all my life. I see that now. I'm a scoundrel in a lot of ways, Karen Mazov. Um, it's important to be able to say that about yourself. It's, it's, Alyosha even does it, and people kind of roll their eyes at him when he does it. When he'll, He doesn't say, I'm a scoundrel, but because that would be exaggerating for him, I think, obviously. But he says, I've got the Karen Mazov nature in me. You know, I'm a sensualist too. Just being willing to admit, uh, yeah, I've got a big ego or I've got a, a lustful 
nature or whatever it is, is just very important. It's a good spiritual sign. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I noted with, like, the the interaction between, like, in the Precocity chapter, the interaction between Kolya and, and Alyosha, they're talking about Voltaire, and, and Alyosha says, Voltaire believed in God, but very little, it seems, and it seems he also loved mankind very little. Alyosha said softly, restrainedly, and quite naturally, as if he were talking to someone of the age of the same age or even older than himself, Kolya was struck precisely by Alyosha's uncertainty, as it were, in his opinion of Voltaire, and that he seemed to leave it precisely up to him, little Kolya, to resolve the question. That's one of the things that I think is hard to to do, uh, to show that vulnerability. And even though Kolya is not that much younger than Alyosha, like he's Alyosha is like twenty, so. Um, so their age gap is not enormous, but you know, one of the things that I try to show with my students is like, I, I don't always have the answer. I don't always know, you know, the best way forward. I, I certainly will think about it and I certainly will, will give an answer if I can, but, um, that, you know, the way I, the way I run my classes is it's discussion heavy and so, and, <laughs> Someone tried to tell me I didn't run discussions because all I was doing was calling on people and they weren't discussing amongst themselves Socratically enough. And it's like, yeah, that's that's because it wasn't a Socratic discussion. Like, I have those too. I just didn't invite you for that day. So anyways, whatever, doesn't matter. But, I, I, you know, I try to direct the conversation in terms of, like, who who speaks. Really, all I'm doing is, like, being the traffic controller on like who's going to say something next. And sometimes people will, will speak to each other's points and sometimes they'll just like speak directly to me. But I think that uh, Alyosha is doing that because he's giving Kolya the, the agency that I think a, a person that age needs, which is you need to start deciding for yourself where are you going to align your, your identity and, and, um, at the end of the, uh, I guess it's at the end of the, the the next chapter, they're talking about something, and um, it says, Goodbye, Karamazov, are you coming back? He cried sharply and angrily to Alyosha. He said, I'll certainly come back in the evening. And then Kolya says, What was it? What was that he said about Jerusalem? What was it? He said, It's from the Bible. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, meaning if I, if I forget all the most that's most precious to me, if I exchange it for anything, may I be struck. Enough, I understand. So make sure you come. Icky, Perez von, he shouted quite fiercely to the dog and strode home with the long, long, quick strides, which of course is like Dimitri's long, quick strides. But that, it's just, it's like blowing my mind, like that little bit that Alyosha doesn't even finish saying is exactly how the novel ends. If I forget the O Jerusalem, like don't forget the things that are most precious to you. Don't exchange them for things that are like purely intellectual, for example. Like, you know, if you forget that your parents raised you, you know, or whoever it was that raised you, if it wasn't your your parents, like if you forget those people in, in favor of an ideology, or in favor of, I don't know, like, a, you know, a, a, an entertainer or something like that. It's like, it 
what is most precious to you is is really like what your God is. And sometimes it's just ourselves. Like sometimes we can just be like, well, what matters to me is myself. And, you know, that's just a starting place. But hopefully the ending place is that, you know, you'll give, give Christ that role instead of yourself because you can't save yourself from an eternal, you know, hell. And so, so why would you even try? And so, you know, Alyosha is giving that, that sense of like, like he's pointing Kolya to this truth in scripture and, and that, you know, um, Ilyusha's um, um, father is saying, right? Is, is he saying, I don't want a nice boy. I don't want another boy. He whispered in a wild whisper, clenching his teeth. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my tongue cleave. He broke off as if he were choking and sank helplessly on his knees in front of the wooden bench. So just that idea of like, like in this moment of seriousness, like cling to what really matters. And I think that, you know, that's that's why the novel ends the way it does, is it, it ends with this same scene, so to speak, like the same characters, because that's that's what matters to Alyosha. Like obviously his his brothers matter to him, but but like his role is to lead the next generation forward. Oh man, that you're directed our attention to this this part at the end of the Ilyusha chapter. It's just uh, it's so emotional. I think I was reading this. We were out at having coffee at Rooted. Rooted is where Adam goes for coffee almost every day. But I was there this one time, and I think I got really emotional and had to like excuse myself. I <laughs> couldn't couldn't stay in there. But it's just this. Um, Ilyusha says, Dad, don't cry. Um, and when I die, get a good boy, another one. Um, choose one of them all, a good one. Call him Ilyusha and love him instead of me. And um, his, his dad goes out of the room saying, I don't want a good boy. <laughs> I don't want another boy. If I forget thee, Jerusalem, may my tongue... Um, I don't know that some moments in this novel are so moving, and the ones with the children are like the prime examples to me. But um, you can tell there's a sense in which his father is is idolizing him, you know, mm-hmm. like putting him too high of a place in his life, and he's just broken and like shattered, and really only like turning to God is gonna you know heal up those broken pieces yeah. by by the time Elisha dies, but. Just the love, there's something that that Alyosha sees in the captain that's very, he says he's very, very large-hearted. He's very good-hearted. And I think it's just, you know, this unconditional love he has for every member of his family. Yeah. Because he looks at his wife, who is, you know, mentally ill. He looks at his, you know ill-tempered daughter who's like spiteful and grumpy because she can't go study in St. Petersburg. And he just sees them all as better than himself instead of holding a grudge against them. And he's like, I don't want a good boy. <laughs> I want my boy. And yeah. it, just, it just really is, is moving to me. And I, I do believe that Dostoevsky was portraying it this way that 
you're closer to God if you just have a like humble love that sees other people in your life as being better than yourself instead of like coming at them from a place of like why can't you be better to live with or why can't you be yeah a better wife or a better child yeah and I think that that you know that attitude like you're saying is you're much closer to God than you think when you're like questioning him and saying why are you know why are you letting this happen and and you know Dostoevsky is is really voicing I'm sure some of his own frustrations about losing his son through through Ilyusha's father and so um Alyosha <laughs> Alexei uh says this is in the Zhuka chapter. It says, Ah, no, there are people who feel deeply but are somehow beaten down. Their buffoonery is something like a spiteful irony against those to whom they dare not speak the truth because of a long-standing, humiliating timidity before them. Believe me, Krasatkin, such buffoonery is sometimes extremely tragic. For him now, everything on earth has come together in Ilyusha, and if Ilyusha dies, he will either go out of his mind from grief or take his own life. I'm almost convinced of it when I look at him now. And, you know, just to watch your child suffer and know know that he is going to die eventually, like, like it's not a matter of if but when, uh, just what a just a heavy, heavy burden to be put on anyone. And, and you know, we, we mercifully haven't had that you know, yet, I mean, Lord willing, we won't have that, but, um, you know, this idea of, like, he, he has just put all of his hope on Ilyusha, like, beating this disease, basically, and that, I don't know, there's just something about all these people being there that makes it, it's almost like it's, it, it's bringing the seriousness to light, and, um, and so just that, like, I don't know, there's something about uh, Kolya bringing the dog that's like, Ilyusha might have been, like, staying alive because he was so, like, like his adrenaline was going because he was feeling so guilty about killing the dog. And then once that goes away, you know, he's going to fade pretty fast afterward. And, and um, it's just interesting that Kolya has no idea like, I mean, granted, Kolya wasn't there when the dog tried to bite the piece of bread. So it's it's like he didn't trick him from the start. It's not like he he hoodwinked him from the very beginning. It's it's that he redeemed the situation that that uh, Smerdyakov had tried to just recklessly destroy, and um, and it's just interesting to think about like this this child dying is the way the novel ends. Like, he's not a major character. I would not even say he's that important of a character. And yet, I think what Dostoevsky is bringing to light in the ending is there are moments that will be more important to you going forward than you realize. And you talk about Ilyusha not being a very important character, and um, I agree completely. In a way, and then another way, Dostoevsky has this beautiful way of making everyone an important character yes. and just having yes. them go through just a little version of the, the ideas he's revolving around in his in his mind in this novel. Like, I think of um, little Ilyusha 
his fierce love and protectiveness of his father and of Kolya. He's devoted to both of them, each in their own way. And the reason he's acting out so badly when we first meet him is because he's defensive of his father. He's just hurting so much on behalf of his father. Ilyusha says he wants to fight a duel with Dimitri when he grows up. And wow. that's not holding on to bitterness till you grow up and then, you know, pulling a like, you know, you killed my father. Like, he didn't kill his father, but you know what I mean? Yes. Um, that's not a good impulse to like hold on to bitterness and rancor and like focus your life on revenge or something like that. But he fiercely loves his father and wants to defend his honor. And it's all mixed up in honor and pride and love. But Ilyusha says, you know, I'm going to fight a duel with him one day. I want to kill him. And I think his father says, no, no, you can't do that. That would be a disaster. Like, no, you shouldn't do that. And he says, fine, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to challenge him to a duel, and then I'm going to magnanimously forgive him in front of everybody. And then he'll feel terrible and I'll have the upper hand. Like, so it's like forgiving him publicly, but in such a way that it's like feeding your pride. It reminded me of Katya. There are all these little parallels. It reminds me of Katya, the way that she's magnanimous toward Dimitri's awful behavior in order to feed her own pride. It reminded me of Zosima's duel, where Zosima has just such different motives going into fighting his duel. Like he fin- he goes through with his duel and lets himself be shot at, but it's because um, he wants to like genuinely atone for like his horrible, like impulsive, angry behavior and fighting a duel in the first place. And it's just exploring the concept of fighting a duel or exploring the concept of showing someone forgiveness, but doing it out of pride. Like, he just explores it through so many different avenues and characters. It's fascinating. Yeah. And I have a couple of thoughts on that. Like the, the duel that Zosima fights, the reason he fights that duel in the first place, like this man has been engaged to the woman that Zosima is basically like, you know, making moves on. And he doesn't even know he's there. It's like he knows he's in the house, but he doesn't know they're engaged. And I think that that's, like to the point of a, an episode about minor characters, that guy was a minor character in in Zosima's romance with this woman, but it turned out that he was a major character, and and it was only Zosima realizing that that kept him from having like a bitterness about like getting shot at in a duel, or, or from I mean he could have killed the guy, you know, and he doesn't, and he shoots into the sky, and so you know there's that moment, and then like the moment you were talking about, about Ilyusha wanting to like publicly forgive Dimitri in front of everyone. It reminded me of the man that comes to Zosima and tells him that he's murdered someone. And uh, I say, this is, he murdered his wife. Is that what it was? He murdered the woman he wanted to marry. In a sense, it's like a parallel again to Zosima's story. You want to marry this woman. She's interested in somebody else. How do you react? Well, do you, act like a jerk and provoke a duel with the other man? Do you kill the woman that you wanted to marry so she can't be with anyone else? Like, these are both options that you can do in a fit of Dimitri's dealing with the same issue. Like, what do you do when the woman you love looks like she might go off with someone else? You kill your rival, even if it's your father. Those are temptations he faces. Um, This book just explores in many different 
big and small sets of circumstances, the temptations people face when their passions are getting out of control or when they're being self-involved and egotistical. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about, like, the other major characters, that, or not major characters, the other minor characters that, that we haven't covered uh, that, that seem like they deserve some mentioning are Grigory and... Um, I just wanted to mention Muisov, who's at the the monastery with them. Uh, Muisov is Willie Tanner, and uh, Fyodor Pavlovich Karamazov is Alf. So if you've never watched Alf before, just watch an episode of Alf. You'll you'll see that parallel, and you'll be like, "Yep, Muisov seems like he is saying Alf. Why is the refrigerator in a closet?" And he'll say something like. Well, I wanted to have more room in the kitchen for a, a trampoline. <laughs> yeah. And so, I don't know, I, I like Moisov because I like that he's like the Bert character to uh, so, uh, to Fedor Pavlovich's Ernie. Except to me, it's, it's like, it's even more uh, lopsided, like to the extent of Willie and Alf, because Willie is technically like the owner of the house and Alf is a house guest. Whereas, like, I assume Bert and Ernie both pay their share of the rent, but Bert probably covers sometimes for Ernie, but who knows. But, um, you know, Grigory, I I wanted to talk about him uh, because he actually has that same sense with with Smirjikov that Moisov has with with, uh, Fyodor Pavlovich. Like, like I, I, I first made that, that, connection when I was reading that but then when I look back it's like Musaf also has that like he gets very ill-tempered because Fyodor Pavlovich is just kind of a you know he, he's always being silly and and not serious and Musaf's too serious um, but Grigory you know he basically raised Dmitri and uh, obviously raised Smerdjikov but uh, when Dmitri thinks he's killed uh, Grigory, I think that's where he feels his real guilt. Like, he's like, I am guilty under heaven mm-hmm. for killing Grigory. I don't think he feels, if he had killed his father, I don't think he would feel the same guilt because he doesn't feel like his father is his actual parent. He feels like Grigory is. Yeah, he says, during the interrogation, he says, you know, that man washed me in a little tub when I was three years old. Um, but this is not the first time he has hit Grigory really hard and, like, ma- maybe killed him. He did it a couple of days earlier when he stormed into the house. Right, really right. not Grigory, Grigory out of the way. Dimitri is so heedless in his violence, and he doesn't even feel guilty about violence in and of itself. He just feels guilty when he realizes, like, oh, it's not an honorable thing to hit an old man who helped raise me when I was a little baby. Oh, yeah, that is bad. And he does feel genuine remorse for it, for sure. Like, he says, I'm ready to take my punishment. Like, whatever the punishment is for knocking an old man over the head, like, I understand if you got to send me to Siberia for a while or something, I'll, I'll take it. Like, I deserve that punishment. He says he was agonizing over it the whole time they were at Mokro that that night everyone was having a good time and he was kind of in a rapture because of Grushenka, but he also 
was thinking, oh, I'd give 10 years of my life if that old man would just live. You know, I just hope that old man's yes. not dead. You know, I was thinking about this concept of, um, like, he, he has to do something thoughtless, something reckless to gain that guilt and to gain the, the, the perspective. And I, I was thinking about the concept of um, being poor in spirit. And how do you get poverty of spirit? Well, I think that you get poverty of spirit by squandering the spirit that you have on something. Like in Demetrius' case, he rages and, and like beats up Gregory and his dad. And this idea of like what is going to bring you to your senses, it's very similar to the prodigal son where it's like he had to go away and squander what his God, the father had already given him, which, by the way, he basically says like, I wish you'd drop dead so I could go ahead and have your money. And his dad's like, fine, here's the money, right? But but then his father has to treat him like he's dead. And so when he comes back to the farm and, and you know, the property, he is in his right senses. He It says he'd come to his senses and he, he says, I want to admit that I've sinned uh, against God and against you. And, um, and the father just forgives him. I mean, of course, you know, that's one of the one of the most famous, if not the most famous, parables in the Bible because it's such a vivid illustration of what God's forgiveness looks like, and um, I think that you know just this this interaction with Grigory is interesting because you have Smerdyakov who basically like dishonors Grigory by killing um, Fyodor Pavlovich. Versus Dimitri seems to like honor Grigory in the end by by like admitting his guilt and and hurting him, and um, and I think that there's just a sense of like with Smerdyakov, Grigory is just giving and giving and giving and not getting anything back, whereas with Mitya, I think that he's he's giving selflessly, but he's actually receiving something because he's giving selflessly. And, um, you know, with, with Smerdyakov, it's like they adopted him because they had lost a child themselves. Uh, I think a, a miscarriage. I can't remember exactly. No, the child died and Gregory had decided it was a dragon. Oh yeah. Didn't it have six toes or something oh, yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's one thing to note quickly about Grigory. Part of why he's so infuriated with Smerdyakov is because Smerdyakov is disrespectful of God and of the faith um, and has been since he was a little boy, has argued against the things that, that Grigory has tried to teach him about God, has, has, has made little witty-sounding um, objections ever since he was a little boy and thought he was smarter than Gregory and kind of ridiculed and scoffed at Gregory. He's a, Smerdyakov is a scoffer, I would say. Um, and Gregory is very heartfelt in his faith. I do think that Gregory relies on his own reason in his faith, and his reason is quite limited, as everyone's is, but his is maybe even more limited than some other people's. And so, like, he is positive he's right that his son is a dragon. That's a superstition. That's something that he has just come to through a combination of, like, I don't know what's folklore and superstition in his own whim. But he's positive he's right and won't have anything right. to do with his baby. Like, I just think he's he's stubborn 
And he thinks he has things kind of figured out. And so therefore, Smerdikov being a scoffer, there's a pride underlying Gregory's faith that basically says, like, don't you dare scoff at me. And you see Gregory doing little things like once his wife danced, and he that's the time that he beat her. She danced. He beat her. She never danced anymore. Um, but but he loved his wife. Like, we're told explicitly, he did love his wife, and she knew that he loved her. Yeah. He's a pretty complicated character. Well, he, he is someone who's an insistent person. He, he has an insistent personality such that, like, he doesn't do anything half-bottomed. Um, and, and I think that that's just a real, I mean, that's one of the, one of the beauties of Dostoevsky is he just captures how people really are. I mean, we know people like that. And, and, um, I think that, like you said, like the, 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 um, superstition that comes in to play with Gregory is, is it, is an illustration of a lack of trust in God instead of a, 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 like pure trust in God. And, you know, I'm not saying that in, in a, in a sense that I like, Oh, I know for certain what trusting God looks like, but I think that this novel is really making that that question uh, a central focus. Like, what does trusting in God look like? And it's superstitious to think that you can't trust God anymore because Father Zosima's body smells like a dead body. Like, that's another su- exploration of, like, superstition versus real faith in God, no matter what happens. So that it comes up over and over again. Father Pierre, I actually think Father Fer- Farapont is similar to Gregory. He's incredibly insistent. He's superstitious. He thinks he sees demons everywhere. He's sure he's right. Um, and he, he sees himself as like the pure uh-huh. like monk. Yeah, he's he's kind of a jerk to everybody. Um, I think that the two of them are a real parallel. And Dostoevsky just refused to keep things simple and black and white, and say. The path of Christ is the right way, and Christians look like this. And I'll make the Christian characters all very exemplary. He's like, no, look around Russia. Like, there are Christian, like, Christian people who are incredibly superstitious and really aren't relying on God's strength as much as their own strength of just pure will and insistence. But maybe they're still in the fold of Christ, but they're, like, escaping us through flames, you know? Like that verse says, yeah. like, they really haven't figured out that God is love. Yeah. And so they're missing something vital. But there's still that's still a way that Christianity manifests in Russia, and I'm going to show it. Right. You know, it's interesting. I, I was just thinking about what you were saying in, in connection to what we said last episode. You were talking about the the parallel between Russia and the American South. And, you know, we certainly know a lot of people that are Christians in the South, um, some of whom are very dedicated to their faith, some of whom are very um, surface level with their faith, some of whom might have been proclaiming uh, their faith 10 years ago and have none now. And and, um, it's a very complex thing to... To, to try and wrap your head around. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that I think is, is mind-boggling is, like, you know, to, to, to touch on, like, seasons one and two that we've already discussed, like, there will be people in heaven that own slaves. There will be people in heaven that 
you know, murdered people. There'll be people in heaven who have, I don't know, like, you know, been very sexually promiscuous. Like, like there'll be people in heaven that might have, like, consciously gotten other people, um, you know, like, like infected other people with terminal diseases or whatever it is. And, and when we try to look at who's in heaven, we are playing the role of God. The only people I can assure you are in heaven are God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Abraham, um, because Jesus talks about Abraham being in heaven in the in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, but you know the the idea of like who else is there? Well, I I think I can safely say like the apostles are there, <laughs> you know. Um, but but the, if I start projecting who's there that I'm the one determining who's there. And I think that that is just a natural, uh, it comes with the territory of Christianity. It's like once you realize there's a heaven, you want to you want to be the one making the guest list because you want to be like, these are the people I want to see, and these are the people I don't want to see. And yet the reality is there's no telling who's going to be there. The only way that I can say with certainty of who's going to be in heaven is the people who put their faith in Christ that confess with their mouths and believe in their hearts are going to be there because that's what the Bible says. And so anything beyond that, I'm speculating. And, and you know, I think, I, like I said, I, there are some safe speculations, but in terms of, like, what Dostoevsky's bringing up with these characters is, like, faith as small as a mustard seed can really grow and manifest into an entire nation. And so Alyosha, you know, is one such seed. And, and you know, this idea of, like, he has to, it's, it's a, I know I'm starting to go into major characters here, but he has to die, you know, from, from the, the, the epigraph, he has to die in the sense that he has to his career as a monk, like he's training to be a monk, and yet he has to like give that up in order to 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 bring much fruit in the rest of mm-hmm. his life. He has to die to his desires, yes. even though yes. they seem like they're good desires. There's nothing bad about what he desires to do. I mean, I, just to your point that. I mean, there is, certainly is fruit. I wouldn't want to say, oh, there's there's no fruit that you could observe and, like, discern whether a person is a Christian. Like, I think on an individual level, we shouldn't be overconfident about thinking we know for sure about a person's heart right. space. But, like, the church as a whole, like, a church has a, a responsibility to say, like, let's verify based on the fruit that we can perceive that you're a Christian True. before you join this church. or You know what I mean? Like, just to have some kind of... Um, like holding the keys to the kingdom of heaven, so yes. to speak. But all this to say, there there is some fruit of Christian faith in Gregory and Father Farapont. Like, for example, Gregory adopts Smirjikov, and he mm-hmm. and Marfa raise him. Like, they take care of all the other Karamazov boys right. when they're little boys until a relative comes for them. Like, they... For some reason, Gregory thinks he needs to stay with Fyodor Pavlovich no matter what. And his wife is like, you know, we could go be faithful employees somewhere else. And he's <laughs> like, no, we have to stay here. 
He has a sense of faithfulness. Like, I do think there's Christian fruit in his life. I do think that he can tend to be like one of these clanging symbols who just talks and talks but doesn't talk with love. And so, therefore, it doesn't have any, even if he is saying something true about God, sometimes it just doesn't have any resonance because he's not saying it with love. And Father Fairpoint's, Fairpoint's like that too. And Father Fairpoint, like, prays and fasts and does these good things, like good Christian fruit, but he also has a distorted picture. Because it's one thing, okay, like, it's one thing to leave out. I mean, we all have these big blind spots when it comes to our sanctification that we are just like, I don't have that problem. I can't see that. I'm not going to deal with that. But love is vital, you know, love is given such a central yeah. place in Jesus' teaching and the New Testament's teaching. To have a blind spot for being loving, like Father Fairpont does, is is bad. It's a big deal. Yes. And, you know, I think that that's great. You know, greater love is, you know, I, I'm losing it. Um, greater love has no man than to give up his life for his friend. Yes. and And I think that that is... One of the things, and I've seen that translated as friends and brothers, and and that of course makes me think about the brothers Karamazov, and um, I, I just I think that this novel is about brotherly love, and it's saying who is my brother, similar to like who is my neighbor with the the parable of the good Samaritan, mm-hmm. and um, and and you know these characters, even though they're minor, I think they all. They all have it's like six degrees of sec, uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> I don't know what I was going to say instead, but six degrees of Kevin Bacon, where you know you pick an actor and you find another person in Hollywood and you connect them through the movies that they've shared with other actors or actresses, and so you know that I, I think is really the glue that holds this novel together is the minor characters. I think that without them, if it was just one of these novels where it's like four or five main characters and then no one else even shows up, I I don't think you could get 800 pages out of it. And I don't think it would be as interesting because it it wouldn't create as much potential for growth because, like, to your point early on in this episode, you were talking about, like, there are people that will come and go from our lives, and we'll kind of think of them, like, almost like we've got a little, like, hook for them. Like, they have a little characteristic, like, Yosemite Sam's mustache or something. But it's like, if that thing is something that you associate with your growth and your, your development as a person, you'll always think fondly of that person. I was thinking about... Uh, this story doesn't really have much to do with anything, but I remember uh, being in Nashville in 2010 when I was trying to make it in music, which I clearly did not. Um, but it, I was I, I was going to give it a year and see what happens. And I was sitting at the Borders Cafe uh, back when there was a Borders in Brentwood, and I was sitting right next to a ta- I was sitting at a table like working on song lyrics and just trying to be brilliant and you know, whatever, and uh, next to me was this conversation between a, a dad and his daughter, and they were just talking and talking, and clearly he was trying to kind of reason with her, and it it sounded like she was trying to kind of go in a direction that he didn't want her to go in, um, but anyways, 
it, it was very much like my parents didn't want me to be doing this. And so I related to her and I, you know, talked to her afterward. And to, to this day, it's the only time I've ever talked to this girl. But the dad was Scott Patty, who's the reverend at uh, Grace Community Church, who that was the church that I ended up going to for the whole year of, of being in Nashville. And I still I listen to their sermons now. Um, and it's basically like my home away from home church. Uh, but that story is just a great example of, like, you never know. Like, I didn't talk to him because I, I, I sympathized with the daughter. And I was like, well, I'm dealing with the same thing with my parents. And, and I think she ended up getting married and has kids. It's like, I'm sure she turned out okay. But, you know, now as a parent, I think, like, man, if, if somebody that's another Christian is sitting next to a table and I'm talking to Josephine, trying to like reason with her. Maybe they'll want to talk to me afterward and be like, oh, "I really feel for you, man. My name's Colia." <laughs> uh-huh. Hey, old man. Uh, hey, old man. Um, but you know, I, I just I think that God has all sorts of ways to connect us to Him through other people, and and I think that having that openness to say what what might God be using this person in my life for rather than saying like, well, God clearly doesn't want this person in my life, but he keeps putting them in my life, you know. <laughs> they keep crossing paths with me, but clearly God doesn't want me in their, their life. Um, I think there's a way to, you know, to the point that we made, I can't remember which episode it was, but like correct a fool lest he stay in his error and, and avoid a fool lest you be ensnared in his foolishness. Like, not everyone in your life is a fool needing correction. Some, sometimes you're the fool that needs correction, and sometimes when those people interact with you, they're helping you. And, and so, you know, having an openness to being interacted with, I think, is, is key. And, and Dostoevsky does a, an amazing job of showing how much interaction you have with other people you know, throughout this novel. Yeah, to the, to the point that you're making about this novel grappling with questions like who is my neighbor and am I my brother's keeper and things like that. Um, I thought of two minor characters who have to deal with those questions um, regarding Mitya. I mean, Mitya just, he needs a lot of help. I think everyone who meets him can tell that he needs a lot of help to the point where people are very sympathetic to him, even when he acts horribly toward them sometimes. Like Fenya, the, um, she's a servant at right, Grishinka's yeah. and he, like strangles her, like yeah. threatens to strangle her. Has I think he has his hands on her neck. He's like, so "Give too. me information." And then a minute later, she's like, oh, "Darling, let me help you. Here's all the information." Like she's people just sympathize with him because I think they look at him like a little kid throwing a tantrum, even though he's doing something very violent. It's it's kind of fascinating. If an actor were to play this role, it would be very tricky to pull off. Yeah. This demeanor, but all this to say, everyone who meets Dimitri is like, this guy clearly needs help. Am I going to help or not? Yeah. And a great example is Piotr Ilyich, who Dimitri pawns his pistols to Piotr Ilyich and then goes back to get them the same day. And he has blood on his hands and his face. He has a bunch of money in his hands, just walking through the street with it. He seems dazed. Piotr Ilyich, remarkably, first of all, instead of being like, 
oh my gosh, I don't even want to deal with you. This is creepy. Like, what is your, what is wrong with you? He's like, come in, Dimitri. What have you been doing? Have you been, he knows Dimitri well enough to be like, Dimitri, have you been fighting in a bar or something? Dimitri, get in here. And he treats him like a child who has too much mud on his clothes or something. He's like, come in here, wash off, put this money in your pocket. You're going to drop it. And then you're not even going to know where your money went. What is wrong with you? You know, he baby kind of babies him. That's his first instinct. And I think that that is supposed to tell us that at heart, Piotr Ilyich is, even though he seems like a very practical man who doesn't think about spiritual matters much, he is kind of on the path potentially to God, just that kindness. First of all, he takes him in like the good Samaritan or something and just starts like fussing over him and trying to help him. And then when he sees Mitya trying to waste a lot of money, Mitya's like telling his servant here, I'm going to give you 10 rubles and you're going to go to the store and you're going to order basically just anything in the store. Just tell him, give me anything at all. Everything expensive, pack it up. And Piotr, Piotr Ilyich is like, no, 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 met yet. No, no, no. He actually goes to the store with them and he's like, don't waste his money. <laughs> you don't need that. Like, are you put, <laughs> he convinces him to spend like a hundred less rubles and he's trying to check to see whether the people are actually giving him the stuff he asked for. And he keeps asking himself, what am I doing? Why am I involved in this situation? This is a ridiculous situation. I should just drop it. But he just can't. He, he can't leave it alone. I'll read one little moment. Um, this is um, Piotr Ilyich uh, talking to himself as he walks along. He's a fool, though he's a good fellow, he muttered as he went. I've heard of that officer, Grushinka's former flame. Well, if he has turned up, ugh, those pistols, damn it all. I'm not his nurse. Let them do what they like. Besides, it'll all come to nothing. They're a set of brawlers, that's all. They'll drink and fight. They're not men who would do anything real. But what does he mean by I'm stepping aside and punishing myself? Eh, it'll come to nothing. He shouted such phrases a thousand times, drunk in the taverns. Oh, but now he's not drunk. Drunk in spirit. They're fond of fine phrases of villains. Am I his nurse? He must have been out fighting. But with whom was he fighting? Like, he goes on and on like this where he's like, oh, forget it. These bunch of drunken idiots. I don't, I'm not involved. And he's like, but I just can't. It's nagging at me. I can't. Mm, just can't quite seem to let it go. And sure enough, he ends up going to Madame Koklikov and waking her up in the middle of the night. Then he goes and wakes up like the prosecutor and the, I guess the sheriff. I don't know what the word for it is there, but the, right. whatever, the law enforcement he goes and wakes up. He's like knocking on doors in the middle of the night. The whole time muttering to himself, what am I doing? This is so embarrassing. Waking people up in the middle of the night. That I don't even know. I don't even know if anything happened. But it turns out I am his nurse, I guess, right? Like turns out I am my brother's keeper. Um, turns out I am responsible for this situation. And I feel like I have to do something about it. Um, and Kalganov is similar to me. So Kalganov is depicted as being childlike mm-hmm. and having just kind of a sweet spirit to him. Um, when they're singing dirty songs in the Mokro Tavern, Kalganov um, gets offended and he's like, that's dirty, that's nasty, like doesn't want to listen to it. Um, and Kalganov also has um, Maximov with him. So Maximov latches onto Kalganov that day that Ivan shoves him out of the carriage at the monastery and he's been with Kalganov ever since and Kalganov is like he's pretty funny I just let him hang out with me 
And then after this, Maximov moves in with Grishinka. Grishinka takes care of him. Maximov is just this guy who, he's a, he's a lackey. You know, he can't take care of himself. I think the characters who are willing to take care of him instead of shoving him out of a carriage, there's just a kindness in their heart. There's like a good Samaritan-ness in their heart, including Grishinka. But Kalganov has that. Kalganov gives um, a set of clothes to Mitya because Mitya's clothes get confiscated by the authorities because they have blood on them and they want to search for money in the lining of the clothes. And so Kalganov gives him a set of clothes and Mitya is so ungrateful. He's like, "Tell, go tell Kalganov I didn't ask for his clothes. <laughs> he's, so, he's like, this coat is too tight. <laughs> Just, you know, He's like, I feel like an idiot in someone else's clothes. And I was th- really thinking about that yesterday. I was just imagining, I like started picturing people I know whose clothes wouldn't fit me and wouldn't be my style. And if you were like, not only are you accused of a crime you didn't commit, but here, wear this person's clothes. I'd be like, this is the final straw. <laughs> I think I'd feel the same way as, as Mitya does. But anyway, Kalganov gives him his clothes and he's so ungrateful. And then the way that that whole section ends is so sweet, I think. Mitya goes, forgive me at parting, good people, as he's leaving the inn. Um, And then he hears a few of the peasants and people saying, forgive us too. And then he says, goodbye to you too, Trifon Borisic. And Trifon Borisic doesn't even turn around and look at him. He doesn't even bother to look at him. And it says, goodbye, Trifon Borisic. Mitya shouted again, but felt himself that he had not called out this time from good nature, but involuntarily from resentment. It's like he at least he understands himself, but he's just like saying it to be a jerk. Um, but this is one of my favorite. I don't know. It's just sweet. One of my favorite little moments in the book. Goodbye, Dmitri Fyodorovich. Goodbye. He heard all at once the voice of Kalganov, who had suddenly darted out, running up to the cart. He held out his hand to Mitya. He had no cap on. Mitya had time to seize and press his hand. Goodbye, dear fellow. I won't forget your generosity, he cried warmly. Um, Mitya changed his tune now because he's like, well, this guy, he wasn't ashamed of him getting hauled off as yeah. a criminal. He wasn't ashamed to run out and be like, just sweet to me. That whole section ends by saying this. Kalganov ran back, sat down in a corner, bent his head, hid his face in his hands, and burst out crying. Just out of pure sympathy for Mitya. It doesn't have anything to do with him. He just he just cares like a child. It says, for a long while he sat like that crying, as though he were a little boy instead of a young man of 20. Oh, he believed almost without doubt in Mitya's guilt. What are these people? What can men be after this? He exclaimed incoherently in bitter despondency, almost despair. At that moment, he had no desire to live. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? He exclaimed the youth in his grief. That just, I don't know what it is about this moment, but it just gets to me like this, like kind of simple hearted boy is just like, if everybody is treating everybody like this, and someone who I think has actually kind of got like this kindness to him and who I feel sympathy for killed his father. What is the world? Can I stand it anymore? I mean, oh, it's just, it's very moving. It's just a tiny character. Yeah. And I think, you know, that he like contemplates suicide, just like um, Alyosha says that the Captain Snigurov, uh, Whisk Broom, is going to, com- you know, contemplate suicide. It, it, it's like, 
I think Dostoevsky really hits the nail on the head about just people in, in intense moments like this can't help but question is life worth living. And I think that you bring a good point about Kalganov. Like, he's such a tiny character. I mean, I cannot, I could barely remember him at all. And then what he had to, like, remind me, you know, of that scene that she just read from. And he does just seem like a little, like, almost like a, um, I can't, I can't think of the reference, but there's some reference where someone does that, where they're like, bye, Mitya, like, I hope hope you're okay. Like like there's there's just something like sweet and pure hearted about it, and um, and I think that that's one of the things that I like so much about this novel is is that it just allows people to be sweet and pure hearted and and you know <laughs> see episode six, um, but um, I, I just I don't have a an easy time in life. And, and I can I can certainly connect to that that sentiment that Kalganov has, which is basically like, why are people so awful to one another? And it made me think about like the way the world was before Noah's flood. It says in Genesis it was people were only violent all the time, and it makes me think about just the the philosophy that Ivan is is purporting to to believe, which is uh, everything is permissible. And that in an everything is permissible world, eventually violence reigns and hope dies. And, uh, you know, Kalganov is, is like on the precipice there of like having no hope. And, and I think that that's just something I really want to like reiterate about this novel is like it, it will show you the true hope in the world because it will show you how close to hopelessness that people really are when they're put into these, like, extreme situations. So um, we, will, we will talk about some minor characters on the next episode, the, uh, the memorable moments. So here are some minor characters we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the Grand Inquisitor. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about um, just, like, we saw some more because we're going to talk about <laughs> the scene at the monastery. We're going to talk about um, the the prosecutor and the defense attorney in the in the trial, and we're going to talk about Satan. So, um, you know, you would think, gosh, y'all have covered everybody, but we we haven't talked about Ivan's dream yet. So, uh, we're going to talk about the Grand Inquisitor and Ivan's dream with Satan. We're going to talk about the trial, and we're going to talk about the. Um, monastery scene and the bow that Zosima does to, to Dimitri. And we're going to talk about the onion uh, and Cana of Galilee uh, scenes, which uh, Dostoevsky said were the most essential to the entire novel. So we look forward to episode nine talking with you next time with Summer Reading with the Deals. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.